Chapter 4 of Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 4 The next morning, the FBI, under the personal supervision of Paris Green and Shorty, arrested Nils Grumman, and they did it with all the finesse of a truck going through the neighbor's brick wall. I was puttering around in my lab in the physics building when I heard Nils' voice loud and emphatic. His little private lab was not many doors from mine, near enough for old Short Circuit to have been able to call him, or me, when the wires were incandescing. Now I could hear Nils' protest, which brought me out the door like a frightened cuckoo from a clock. Paris, Green, and Shorty stood facing Nils, who was pale and frightened, and I guessed, pretty furious. When I entered the lab, he was standing with his back to the work table, his hands gripping the edges in nervous tenseness. When he saw me, he shouted, They say I did it, that I killed old Short Circuit. Tom, you know I loved him, and if I'd won at the bomb site, would I have gone about getting it in that crude way? I who worked with him so closely? Why, they might as well accuse you. It was an argumentum ad hominem, right enough, for they were, I was pretty sure, already beginning to level a suspicious finger at me. Listen, Paris. I caught myself up short and muffled the Paris with a smothering, Mr. Green. I know Nils, and he had no more to do with this than a Diane Quince had. Paris looked at me with all the affection of a rooster for a hungry fox. So you're the one, not he. I was mad enough to be recklessly impatient. Of course, anyone can see I popped the professor off. I do that kind of thing to work my way through college. Murder Incorporated, Campus Branch, Tom Prentice, Executive Secretary. Come around sometime and meet Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, my triggermen. Parrish and Shorty looked at each other, deadpan as the underside of a lair cake. Awfully funny, isn't he? Parrish asked Shorty. And if he was trying to get me blistering, he was rapidly succeeding. Once, I said, I had a great respect for the FBI. Even when you first started on this job, I had some respect for it. But to put the finger on Nils, who has all the murderous instincts of an Easter rabbit. Harris flicked a finger at Nils. Get going, he said, and the three of them went past me as if I were part of the laboratory equipment. As they disappeared down the corridor, old Charlie's door slowly opened, and the janitor peeped out into the hall. He beckoned to me from the shadow of his room and I strolled over casually to talk with him. We'd not met since the examination. I'd always liked him. I liked him even more now that I knew that he was Eisenberg's cousin, and had actually brought the old genius to Rockledge. I entered his room, and he closed the door softly. Abraham, he said quietly, and I felt he stroked his cousin's name with a tender, unexpected affection. Had almost finished his bomb sight. It should be finished. We owe that to the country that gave him refuge. Yes, and we owe that to the country that drove him out. Yours is a strange language, he said, pleased with his play on words. One simple word, oh, and it means so many different things. I leaned against his table, which was crowded with all sorts of junk, odds and ends of the physics department. Well, said I a little patronizingly, why don't you ask Dean Rothen to let you have the bomb site? Then the two of us in spare minutes can put it together again. The old man grinned crookedly. He looked, I had to confess, 
a little like Quasimodo threading the cannon. Because, he said slyly, Dean Rothen hasn't got the bomb site. I guess by this time I'd grown accustomed to surprises, otherwise I should probably have shouted my amazement. I knew that Dean Rothen had ordered that the bomb site, smashed though it was, be dismantled and carried to his office. We had all heard that it was carefully locked in his safe. Nils and I certainly hadn't seen it since the night of the murder, so we took it for granted that the dean's orders had been carried out. But now this old janitor calmly announced that after all, the bomb site wasn't in the dean's safe, but the old man might be lying, or crazy. No, said Charlie, when I got the orders to dismantle it, and the dean himself gave me the orders, smart fellow that he is, I dismantled it all right, but I put it here. He hobbled and shuffled to that gigantic cupboard in the corner, swung open the wide door, and showed me a mass of canvas, old books, catalogues, broken pipes, wheels, everything over which a junk collector might smack his lips. And then with an adroit gesture, he lifted the underlying canvas. There, smashed as I had seen it the night of the murder, lay the bomb site. But, I protested, reluctant to believe my senses, the dean thinks, I know he does, the bomb site is safe in his office. Or doesn't he? Dean Rothen, said Charlie gently, the scientist patronizing one of inferior mentality, is a theoretical economist, a fine businessman, and a great, great mouthpiece. Old Charlie's speech, aside from his thick accent, was startlingly correct. What I brought him, what he put into his safe, what he locked carefully away, no doubt looks like a bombsite to him, but to you and to me. And to anyone trying to get it, I added. So we sat and talked. I was proud of the old fellow, proud of the trick by which he had kept the bombsite out of the dean's hands. We talked of what may have happened that night, who approached the professor, how the old hero hit in the face, struck down with a blow, yet had the magnificent courage, stamina, and will to hurl himself against the uprights and deliberately smash the bombsite into the mass of twisted parts that lay there in Charlie's cupboard. Charlie touched my knee in friendly reassurance. And I think, my boy, that you and I together could remake the bombsite if... His voice was wistful, wishful. We could find the eyepiece. That they have, and that is essential. Though they cannot do without what we have, we cannot do without the eyepiece if we could find it. I swallowed hard. Should I or shouldn't I? No one knew. Any normal man would believe that the person who had the eyepiece was the murderer. Yet I was impelled to trust him as he had trusted me. I have the eyepiece, I said quietly. The old man raised his eyebrows slowly as he looked at me in amazement, pleasure, perhaps, I thought just a flash of pride. Good, he said quietly, very good. His work shall go on. His discovery shall yet serve the country that welcomed him. Harry was quitting aviation, and I went with him while he broke the news to Morin. Harry had read me the letter from his father, and it was pretty positive. There was an enclosure from his mother, too. Not many lines, but shot through with a mother's worry and torturing anxiety for an only son. Harry made me read the letters, and then he himself read them again. What can I do? he demanded, hurt disappointment in his face, 
and nervousness making harsh his voice. There was really no answer. His father didn't absolutely forbid him to continue in aviation, but what he said was plenty, that the country wasn't taking very good care of its student pilots, that somehow or other the young fellows weren't making a success of it, that his mother would die if he were killed. I could believe that after I read her letter, that if Harry insisted on going on, he, the father, would say no more, but asked his son to remember their love for him and his mother's fears. All I could think of as I read the letters were the probable hundreds of other letters just like these, letters written by parents and read by student pilots since the mysterious crashes started. In Europe, the dictators could send their young men up to die, and parents didn't dare utter a protest. In our country, democracy meant that parents were free to stop a son from a course they felt would probably lead to his death. And, I thought, the dictators were the very men smart enough to take advantage of this freedom. In fact, I could almost see the chain-lightning logic in the dictators' minds. The best aviators would certainly be the college-trained pilots. Therefore, everything possible must be done to stop that training. And if students continued to crash, their parents, loving their sons more than they did liberty or freedom, would stop the training. Therefore, I could almost hear the harsh order, let them crash. Let's go see Morin, I said, and off we stamped to the airfield and the converted bungalow that had been turned into Morin's headquarters. His sleek, magnificent car stood outside. The chauffeur snapped to attention and clicked a smart salute as Harry passed. Harry saluted in return, and the chauffeur relaxed again to await further orders. Morin welcomed us from behind a cloud of anxiety that he took no pains to conceal. He tried to smile, but you felt he was pulling the smile all the way up from his ankles. Harry simply held out the letter and his mother's note, and Morin accepted both silently. When he had finished reading the letters, he handed them back and walked to the window that gave onto the field. A few planes were warming up. There were mechanics about engaged in routine jobs. I saw Rodriguez come out of a hangar, stride up to a plane, and start working on the carburetors. The whole field looked dead, listless, stunned, as well it might. Whatever spirit there had been in the student corps was largely gone. How could it be otherwise when each man went up wondering whether he'd come down, guiding his plane, or with the plane twisting him in a long ribbon of smoke and flame? In a few minutes, Warren walked back from the window and faced us across the desk. We didn't think it strange that he hadn't suggested our sitting down. He was too tense, too nervous, too weighted with worry and foreboding, to sit down himself, and we could not well sit while he stood. When he spoke, his voice was strained, but deliberately quiet. I quite understand, he said. If I were your father, I should feel as he does. But if all the fathers of the country feel that way... He shrugged his shoulders in a Gaelic gesture of hopelessness. What happens to America's preparedness? Oh, we thought of that right enough, and there was nothing we could say now. I'm sorry, continued Morin, if there were anything I could do, anything I could prevent, those young men crashing to their death. I took a chance. I'd wanted to say this for a long time. Not crashing to their death, sir. They were dead, or at least unconscious, long before the planes hit the ground. Morin and Harry both spun on me in amazement. What I said was such obvious nonsense. Pilots killed in mid-air, far from the reach of a killer. It wasn't as if some anti-aircraft battery had fired on them. I saw that Morin and Harry both thought me idiotic. 
Yet how could they, who certainly knew far more about aviation than I did, fail to realize that there was something weird, something utterly unnatural in the fact that those young men who crashed had done nothing to save their ships, nothing to bring their planes out of a situation which, even to my inexperienced eye, the rankest tyro should have been able to control. I saw that they were waiting for me to speak, but some strange prudence made me hold my tongue. Besides, I wanted to try an experiment, and if I told them now... Harry, I said, talking straight to him, I came with you because, forgive me, I want you not to resign. What? cried Morin, but I ignored him. It was Harry I was addressing. Stay in for at least one more week, but promise me, and I asked Mr. Morin here to give me his word, too, that you'll not fly without letting me know the exact time and place. The two men hesitated. Morin's face was haggard and gray. Harry was weighing all the considerations, especially those created by the letters which once more he held in his hand, against my apparent turnabout. There was no further argument that I could for the moment use, so I simply waited. I'll do it, said Harry at last, but without too much enthusiasm. I'm glad, said Morin, and then directly to Harry, you don't know how much this will mean to the morale of the men, to know you're sticking. I wanted badly to add, sticking with the sinking ship, but I decided against it. Dick picked us up in his car, and we drove silently out along the main highway, and then switched off toward a village that comes close to being our local ghost town. Someone had thought it a perfect place for a glass plant, because there was some sort of fine sand in a nearby creek. Strange what crackpot ideas people get, and how they lose money trying to promote them. All that was left of the town was one big, empty, desolate-looking, boarded-up glass factory, and further down the road a starving gas station, a shriveled general store, and a few frame houses sandwiched in between buildings that had been deserted when the glass plant collapsed. We lazed along toward the town simply because the road was so little frequented, and hence offered an opportunity to think things over. Dick reported that a vast sigh of relief had gone up from the campus over the arrest of Nils Grumman. Even Nils' rather rare friends were relieved that a definite scapegoat had been found on whom to pile the sins that had been committed on the campus. The fact that he had kept his German origin a secret made him seem the most unsettled of fifth columnists, and the FBI men simply held him incommunicado with bail posted so high that nobody could even think of coming forward with the money. He no more did it than I did, I growled. And Harry said, ironically, but there are plenty who wouldn't think that comparison such a wonderful one for innocence. What am I going to do now that you've kept me at the stick of the suicide planes? Dick edged over to the side of the road to let a machine pass. It was cruising along at a speed that was easily seventy miles an hour, and we all winced instinctively, as it swerved our way. We followed it with our eyes, as one always does a speeding car. Dick whistled in surprise. Old Eisenberg's car, or I suppose you'd call it Mitzi's. We all recognized it. Who was at the wheel? A man, said I, for I had been closest to the passing machine, but Mitzi was in the car too. Shall I follow it? asked Dick, who loved to display the surprising power of his car. Who do you think you are, Dan Cubitt or Paul Pry? demanded Harry. And then to me, more importantly, tell me what I'm supposed to do in this new plot of yours. As briefly as I could, I explained. Just as I had reached the conclusion and was waiting for his reply, 
Dick guided his car once more to the edge of the road, his eye on the mirror. Again a car swept past us, traveling, if anything, faster than the other car that had passed us. Did you get it? demanded Dick, knowing very well that we did, for it was Morin's car, though in it a blind had been drawn, cutting off a clear view of the people inside. A slow, silent five minutes brought us to the semi-ghost house. Pull into the gas station, I instructed the others, as we passed the abandoned factory and came into the pathetic town itself. The ancient station owner, who, if Charon were running a motorboat on the sticks, might well have supplied him with gasoline, came ambling out. Gas, oil, free air, or water, he demanded, adding the last two in a spirit of fatalistic resignation. You have soda or ice, haven't you? I asked, ignoring all his other offers. He nodded grudgingly. Three of the lost loud colors, I said preferably with the tops off the bottles, and no broken glass in the soda. He obeyed instructions unsmilingly. I sipped, and he stood waiting for the conversation, which, from the look of him, you think he would disdain. So I made conversation. Cars certainly flash through this up-and-coming town of yours at a terrific rate of speed, don't they? Wonder your highly efficient police force doesn't pursue them on the latest model motorcycles. What cars? he demanded, realistically specific. The two racing specials that we just passed on the road, I explained. He looked at us in distaste. Didn't see no cars, he replied. Nothing passed here faster than this bus of yours, and my bet is she'd burn out her bearings at anything over eighteen an hour. Dick bristled at this insult to his car. Harry was buried in thoughts about the scheme I had suggested to him. Of the three... I am sure I was the only one who was puzzled by the man's answer. Two cars, Mitzi's and Morin's, had dashed down the road at racing speed, and some place between us and the filling station, both cars had either slowed to an inconspicuous pace or had disappeared off the road. Since when they had passed us, the cars had clearly showed no signs of slackening. They must. I put this aside for future thought, and we swung back toward the campus. Just as we turned from the ghost town road into the main highway, we heard a cheerful honking behind us. Queer, but you can always tell the difference between honking that means angry, demanding of the road, and honking that means friendly greeting. This was a cheery hail, and we all turned around. Mitzi's car had quietly, unobserved even by the watchful Dick, eased up behind us, and Mitzi was leaning far out of the window, waving her beautifully gloved hand and in the car there was no slightest sign of our friend the foreign diplomat. "'You boys look crowded in there,' she cried. "'One of you want to ride home with me?' I was out and into the front seat beside her before anyone else had a chance to answer. It didn't take more than a casual glance at her to know that she wanted some definite information very badly. Hence the cheerful hail and the invitation, and I could guess what she wanted to know. Had we noticed her when she passed us?' So I settled back luxuriously in the seat, determined not to open the subject, because I was not quite sure of what I would say if she asked me directly. Woman fashion, she talked all around the subject, how she missed the professor, which I didn't believe, how fond he had been of me, which may have been the case, at least I like to believe it, what a dear girl Julia May was, as if I didn't know, and finally, in so offhand a voice that any movie director would have labeled it overacted, was that your car I passed a little while ago going the other way? 
When? I asked innocently. Then to make innocence still more lily white. Where? I could feel even if I couldn't hear her sigh of relief. I must have been mistaken, she said, and I nodded. So I let her drive me to her home. I took Julia May to dinner in a quiet little campus restaurant, and brought her back while the evening was still in its early adolescence. Then I took a slow, thoughtful walk across the campus and to my quarters. What is it that gives you a clairvoyant feeling that all is not right with your own room, that something has happened to it while you've been gone? Anything slightly out of place and you spot it? No, more than that. You stand outside the closed door, trying hard to pretend that there's nothing to worry about, and you think, Somebody's been here. Something's wrong. I sensed it the moment I touched the doorknob. I was sure of it as I swung the door open and felt for the light switch. Confirmation of my feelings hit me with a bang of reality when my eyes swept across the room and saw my beloved radio. The precious monument to my labors and old short circuit's genius was a tangled mass of broken tubes and ripped wires, wrecked beyond any use, and, I thought rapidly, possibility of repair. In the intensity of my nervous reaction, I left the door open and stamped across the room in a rage. The set was a hopeless mess. The man or men who had wrecked it were experts. What they had done to my machine would have created all in the mind of an expert in sabotage. Somehow they knew that on the upper register of my radio I could get short, short wave messages. So they had invaded my room, for a second time, I was sure of it, and smashed the machine for good. I would listen no more to anything they might send over that special wavelength. I would eavesdrop no more on their commands and reports. Then behind me I heard the door close quietly, but with emphasis, and I heard the lock click. I didn't need to turn to be sure that no drought had blown the door to. It had that gentle, definite sound that told of a door closed by a human hand. I must have spun around like a top whipped by an expert youngster, for as I did so, the room went dark, as dark as a room can be when a light is quickly extinguished. There was a faint glow from the campus outside, and my eyes struggled in the darkness to identify my visitor. But to make the darkness more intense, he suddenly pointed a bright pocket flash full into my eyes, blinding me. Even at that I could vaguely discern, against the door, a man's figure draped in what seemed to be a kind of black poncho that covered him like a cape. A large, soft hat shaded his face, and, a touch of melodrama, he was going to miss none of the essential stagecraft of the situation. A black handkerchief covered all of his face except his eyes. When he finally spoke, it was in a voice so disguised, in words so clipped, that he might have been Lawrence Tibbet, or Popeye, or the boy orator of Zapato City, for all I could guess. With a gun and the spotlight leveled right at the spot between my eyes, he said just one word. Eyepiece. Why are our reactions so involuntary? Why does even a question that we expect produce an effect upon us that we can't quite master? And why did my eyes swing against my will? despite my control, toward the top drawer of the bureau, in which I had placed the eyepiece. And why did he spot my reaction so swiftly, so tenaciously? He advanced toward me, the light of the flash growing brighter as he approached, the gun more menacing. He stood in front of me, and with a gesture of his head indicated the top drawer and said, Get it. I moved toward the hidden, inessential eyepiece. It was only a few steps to the drawer, Yet in that short distance, I made a most sweeping survey of the case, 
little did he know that the eyepiece would do him no good since the mass of junk in the dean's safe wasn't the real bomb site and the supposed cipher that had been taken from julia may's envelope was really a letter unless that was the point unless charlie was playing me double and that might mean either that the instrument he showed me was not the real bomb site or that he had the real bomb site and now with his essential eyepiece he would supposing he were in on the whole wretched business have the completed invention all this swept across my mind before i reached the drawer the man covered by the brightness of the light was behind me i could see the outlines of him vaguely in the mirror which was brilliantly throwing back my own reflection but what he looked like who he might be i couldn't make out open it he commanded and i pulled the drawer open there on the very top was the tie box my tie still a tangled heap of inert eels Quickly his hand shot over my shoulder, and I knew he had found the sight. It was the hand that also held the gun, and I grabbed for it in an impulse of mingled insanity and courage. But it was a wasted gesture. Something heavy came down on my head. Perhaps it was the flashlight. It well may have been. For the room was plunged into darkness, and I fell into a still deeper darkness. End of chapter 4